Old Testament. We want to spend a number of weeks in some of the minor prophets. Those are those books that are stuck together there between Daniel and Matthew. Those Old Testament books, little small books. You'll run into Nahum and Zephaniah and Zechariah and so forth, but you're going to keep going backwards until you see Jonah or Amos. Jonah is right after the Old Testament prophet Amos. And I'm going to begin reading with verse number one in chapter one, and then we'll go from there. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. Now if you see anybody struggling to get to Jonah, you help your neighbor. Don't just leave them abandoned there. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa. He found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. The Lord sent out a great wind into the sea. There was a mighty tempest in the sea so that the ship was like to be broken. Then the mariners were afraid and cried every man unto his God and cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it of them. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship, and he lay and was fast asleep. And that's as far as we'll read. We'll have a word of prayer. But we want to look tonight in this chapter, chapter 1, we want to teach a, just a short lesson called In a Sea of Trouble. You know, you've heard people talk about being in a world of trouble. We talk about in a sea of trouble. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful to have another opportunity to fellowship. There is no better way to punctuate a day than to be in fellowship with the saints. So now as we look into the word of God, speak to all of our hearts. Do not let this chapter leave us unchanged. But God, give us all something to meditate on and something to think about as we consider this prophet Jonah. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Jonah was a contemporary with those folks that lived about seven or eight hundred years before Jesus, so that would put him in range with Isaiah and some of those folks. But he lived during the time when the Assyrian Empire was a very, very brutal regime. They were strong. and They covered a lot of territory. Obviously, the Assyrians were some sinful people that God wanted to communicate with. and That certainly is the love of God and that God doesn't want to leave anybody as they are, especially if he knows they're doing wrong. Part of being godly and being like God is to be willing to speak to people when they're kind of on the wrong road, doing the, the wrong things. But these Assyrians were brutal, and we know that they're the ones that pioneered what later became the crucifixion. Because very often these Assyrian people, we know this from cuneiform tablets in the Middle East, they would very often take a sharp piece of wood, and if someone was guilty of a particular crime, they would impale them with it. That is to say, they'd take that sharpened end of that wood, place it in someone's back, 
then hoist that person up in the air. And that would be the form of torture that they would have to endure until they died. Later on, of course, the Romans pioneered the whole process of crucifixion, as difficult as it was. But, but that was the kind of regime that they were involved with. Nineveh was one of the principal towns of the Assyrian Empire. And according to verse 1 of chapter 1, the Lord, at this particular time, wanted Jonah to go and speak to them. Now, when it says the word of the Lord came to Jonah, that's emphasizing that this inspiration that would come to these prophets wasn't on them all the time, but different points and seasons in their lives, the, the Lord would begin to speak to them, and it didn't matter where they were. Because with God, it's never a matter of geography. God doesn't have a hard time reaching you or reaching me. He can talk to you in a big city, a small town. He can talk to you in a tree. If you're swimming in the waters, he can get you in the car, wherever you are. The word of the Lord is able to reach you, and that's one of the principles we learn throughout Scripture. But it's what God said to him in verse 2 that's notable. He says to this prophet to go to Nineveh, that great city. So you have a formidable task in front of you, Jonah. And that task is to go and cry against it, to speak out, to utter my word, to be my mouth person or my spokesman. And he says their wickedness has come before me. Now going all the way back to Genesis you remember when Adam and Eve were in the garden, they sinned, God knew it, God saw it. And even at the book of Revelation at the end, it talks about the, the wickedness of man being great, and the, the sinfulness of man, and the Lord is able to see that. So there's never been a time, and there never, never will be a present time where God is unable to observe our sins. He sees what you do, he sees what I do. Even when we think he's not paying attention, he certainly is. But the, the obstacle that Jonah has to overcome in order to make it to the point of obedience is Nineveh. That's the challenge. And, and, and God may give great challenges to you and, and to me, but in order to tackle those challenges, we have to be able to hear the word of the Lord. God's word for us is to go to this place called Nineveh and cry out against it. Now, Jonah didn't want to do that. He was familiar with Nineveh. The Assyrian Empire had a reputation. And this is why in verse 3, Jonah, he, he decided to run. Now, later on, we learned that the reason he ran because, was because he said if these people repent, then God's going to be merciful and God's going to treat them nicely. But these wretched people deserve judgment, as bad as they've been. And that's what Jonah says later on in, in, in the book. But in verse 3, it's interesting because God says to him in verse 2, get up and go to Nineveh. Jonah determines in verse 3, he's going to get up, but he's going to get up and go in the opposite direction towards Spain. So God says go in one direction. He chooses to go in the opposite direction, thinking that he can flee from the presence of the Lord. Now, where can you go to get away from God? Nowhere. Even David said that in the psalm, and he he, he, we, we have it in that, that old English that says, Whither shall I flee? To where shall I flee from the presence of the Lord? He says, If I take the wings of the morning and I fly through the heavens, he's there. He said, if, if, if I died and they put me in the ground, he said, he's still there. He said, If I went to the depths of the, the ocean or the water, he said, Behold, the king is there. There's no place that you can go 
to escape the presence of God. But you have to wonder, why would a man who's a prophet, who's familiar with God, has a relationship with God, why would he then rise up and flee from God? See, he didn't think God was going to come after him. That's, that's what it was. He had no idea that the king was going to be on his, on his tail. And so in verse 3, he goes down to Joppa, and he finds a ship. Now, it's, it's convenient, I think, that whenever people want to get involved with sin or transgressing God's commandment or doing things that God doesn't want them to do, they always seem to find some willing person or persons who's, who's able to help them get away from God. And you can see in verse 3, it says he found a ship and he paid the fare and, 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 and he had the money. So, so there we have it. Here's a man running from God. He's now trans, trespassed into a place where he's, he's sinning against the word of the Lord and he's going in the opposite direction. So you can use your money to sin. He's doing it. God wants us to be good stewards over what we have. He wants us to be good stewards over our time, good stewards over our lives, good stewards over our monies. That's important. He found the ship that was headed to Tarsus. He paid the fare. He went down into it to go with them to Tarsus. Now, these folks had no idea that Jonah was fleeing from God. They just thought they had another passenger on the ship who's going in whatever direction they're going because he's headed towards Spain. Now, can you imagine trying to run from God and he got on this seagoing vessel and he thought, oh, this is going to be good. And you've seen those pictures when people get on those those cruises, carnival cruises or whatever, and then you got the people standing on the sides and they're waving and somebody's on the edge and they're looking and they're just thinking, oh, this is going to be a wonderful time. I don't know if the vessel was that big, but I guarantee you, as that thing was moving away from the shoreline, further out there into that sea, Jonah was thinking he was safe. That's how most people are. The scripture says, to him that knows to do good and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. And when we know we should be doing a certain thing, living a certain way, but we don't live that way and we start moving further and further away from God, there's a degree of comfort that comes to us if a lightning bolt doesn't hit us or the roof doesn't cave in or the floor doesn't collapse underneath us. We start thinking, "Okay, I'm safe. Everything is fine. And that's exactly what he was thinking here. He had no idea that God who's God on land is also God on the sea. I'm not telling you God's going to hit anybody with a lightning bolt. I'm not telling you he's going to cause your, your home to cave in. But what I am saying is that when you're trying to run from God, you can't get away. It's impossible. Just you can't, you can't get away. So verse 3, the sentence in, in the top of the verse says he's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Then it's reiterated at the end of verse 3, he's going with them to Tarshish, from the presence of the Lord. So notice the emphasis. He's trying to get away from God. Now that is why you have a difficult time trying to reach people in your family. You notice relatives are hard to reach. If you've had loved ones that have been raised in church, they know the difference between right and wrong. Their conscience has been seeded with scripture. And so sometimes if they're not careful, they'll come to a place in their life where they'll begin to hate what they know. They'll hate it. They'll despise it. It'll bother them that their conscience is troubled by the fact that somebody told them that you're not supposed to steal or lie or commit adultery or blaspheme God. 
And that thing becomes like an agitator inside of them, kind of like an agitator in a washing machine. And, and, and pretty soon it just, it just brings a lot of trouble to them. Now we can also say it this way. It brings, it brings some internal dis-ease so they're no longer comfortable. person can't sleep, mentally troubled, and... When people are trying to run from God, they don't want you to read a Bible around them. They very often don't want to hear gospel music. They certainly don't want someone preaching to them or inviting them to church. They'd much rather stay anywhere where God's presence is not. I'll never forget that. When we come to the house of God, when believers gather together, according to the Old Testament, the gathering at the temple was for the Jews. For honorable Jews, covenant Jews, it was not for the Hittites and the Canaanites. They were not supposed to come into the temple and then try to conform the temple liturgy and ritual to what the Canaanites, the Hittites, and the Hivites desired. When you get into the New Testament, you learn that the gathering of the believers on the Lord's Day, it was about the Christians coming together because of the New Covenant, the New Testament. It was not about Christians coming together trying to figure out how can we make people who don't believe in God feel more comfortable in our midst. It was about coming together to worship God, to have a relationship with God. And then, of course, when we learn that we are now the temple of the Holy Spirit, corporately, the church, all of us, that the Holy Spirit lives in us individually as well as as a body, then you quickly have to learn that it is not God's desire for you to take your life and conform your life to what the world believes and says and does. So you're supposed to be the you're supposed to be the duck that doesn't quack when everybody else quacks. Yeah, you're supposed to be the one that's different. You're the salmon that's going upstream when everybody else is heading out to the ocean. That's the difference. You're constantly making your way back to the cross when everything in this world is fleeing the cross because everything in the cross is self-denial, death to self, placing of our particular will on the altar, sacrificing our desires and wishes for God's desires and wishes. And everybody else is fleeing from the cross because further away from the cross is selfishness, self-centeredness. I can live any way that I want. Who are you to tell me to live a certain way? You can't tell me what's right and what's wrong. All of that is far from the cross. And that's what happens when people are trying to flee to Tarshish and get away from the presence of God. But verse four, the first sentence, the Lord sent. The Lord sent. Say those three words with me aloud. The Lord sent. Don't forget that. So anybody that's running. When they're trying to run from their past, when they're trying to run from what they know, when they try to run from how they've been raised. You can see that no matter where they go, verse 4, the Lord is able to send a great wind. Now, in verse 2, God had in his mind a great city, but he couldn't quite get it in Jonah's mind. So the only way he's going to get it into Jonah's mind, since Jonah is fleeing, he's got to send something else to Jonah that's even bigger, and that's a great wind. So Jonah's on the vessel, the great wind comes, and of course the wind is what's going to stir up the sea, and there's a mighty tempest, the scripture says, and the ship was like to be broken. So you, you've seen movies and documentaries of these seagoing vessels that when they discover them at the bottom of the sea floor or ocean floor, sometimes they're broken in two or broken in three or four places, and you're wondering, how in the world could that happen? Well, it happens because 
if a wave is big enough and it comes up and it comes down and pounds you, that's like having a concrete fist hit you. It'll break a wooden vessel in half. A wave that's big enough and powerful enough can take even some of our, our vessels that we had in the military back in the 40s and 50s and just snap them just like it was just an old piece of sheet metal before they created some of the, the ones that we have now. So let, let's never forget that, that if God is con, in control of the wind and he's in control of the sea, then all kinds of things can take place. Now, the ship was not going to be destroyed, but they thought it was. That's what God was after. He wanted them to have the impression and the feeling that they weren't going to survive. Because when people feel like they're not going to survive, you know, one of the first things they do is start calling on God. Trouble has a way of making people call on God. Get to the bottom of the barrel. There's not much left to scrape. You got to look up. When a person is on some kind of uh, vessel and it's about to go, go down, then they begin to call on God. Verse 5, the mariners were afraid. Now, I've, I've looked all through my life through the years just, just trying to find a word that, that even connects, connects with us Marines. And the first time I find it in the Bible, it's got fear connected with it. The Marines were afraid. These were people who do this for a living. And they were fearful. Just because you do something well and you've done it for a long time, that doesn't mean you can do it so well that a circumstance can't arise that you're not comfortable with. One thing I do know about being on ships and being a former Marine, is that there are places out there in the middle of the water where when you walk around and you look in any direction and you can't see nothing but water, if you stand out there long enough and just get to thinking about that a little bit too much, you will get a bit nervous. Because you can't drink all that water. You certainly can't walk on the water. And you may be the best swimmer in the world, but some of the best swimmers can't swim 2,000 miles. These mariners were nervous, and that's why the captain, the shipmaster, he came and he, he's, he, he's trying to get these folks to lighten the load. So in verse number five, notice it says everybody began to call on their God. Now, it didn't matter which God it was. Just please call on somebody because <laughs> of all the gods that were in ancient time, maybe one of them will help us. Now, you know as well as I do, there's only one God, one living God. That's Jehovah God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost. But, but in ancient times, just like now, you still have people that worship all kinds of different deities. And can you imagine all of these people crying out to these different gods? And while they're crying out to their gods, they're throwing many of the goods into the water that they need, possibly food, other supplies, maybe what they need for fishing. But when you're in trouble, and you think the ship's going down, you'll start getting rid of everything, sometimes even stuff that you need. If, if you're trying to save a family, a marriage, a son, a daughter, a friendship, and it looks like everything is just kind of going haywire, you'll be surprised at the things that people will do in order to try to save it. People will compromise in order to try to keep people in their lives. Parents will bend over backwards just to maintain a relationship with their child, even if bending over backwards means it's going to pain them and hurt them. Happens all the time. But this is what they're doing. They're trying to throw stuff overboard to lighten the load. But 
when the storm is there because of sin, now they didn't know this, but when the storm is there because of sin, I want you to know there's nothing you can throw overboard that's going to fix that. Nothing. No, you, you, can't, you can't get rid of anything that, that's going to fix that. If a man or woman is alienated from the life of God, separated from God by sin, because that's the only thing that separates us from God. You're not separated from God by feet and inches. We're only separated from God by our iniquity. The only thing that can deal with our iniquity is the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Once we believe in Jesus Christ by faith, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he put himself in between the wrath of God and us. And having faced that and embraced that and suffered on our behalf, once we have placed faith in him to know that that judgment has come to him, then all of our past sins, our present iniquities, are eradicated by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are totally free, and you have to believe that by faith. Even if the vessel is still rocking back and forth, and in your mind and in your conscience you're still feeling bad about your Christian life and your spiritual life, because you don't always feel Christian when you wake up each morning, you have to understand that there's nothing more that you can do to lighten the load. He has to do that for you. Now, once God does that, then he doesn't need you to jump back in the water and try to throw it back up on the ship. Yeah. And he doesn't need you to try to go fishing for what's out there in the water and try to pull it back up on the vessel. It's kind of like when I do altar calls sometimes and I say to people, okay, this is a place of consecration. We want you to talk to God. Leave it all here at the altar. Scripture says, he that confesseth their sin and forsaketh their sin will find mercy. So I say, turn away from it all right here and just leave it and let's just walk away and start a brand new life with the king. Even if you're a Christian, just leave all that stuff here. Well, there are a lot of people, they'll, they'll, they'll confess stuff to God and go through all of that with God, but then in the end, have the inability to just leave it. Some people can't sail away from stuff they've had in their life a long time. They want to keep it with them. Some people are afraid to sail alone without knowing they're not alone and God's with them because they've been so used to sailing with the baggage of anger, see, impatience, unforgiveness, poverty, whatever it might be. And, and they, they, they don't want to let that, let that go. But while all of the mariners were doing everything that they were doing up top, you can see in verse 5, the man who's the cause of the problem, he's down there sleeping soundly. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> the problem causer is sawing logs in the lower part of the vessel, which is of interest because sometimes the people that cause you the most trouble, they act like they haven't caused you any trouble at all. You know, <laughs> You know, you, you, you'll go out and work two or three extra jobs or an extra job to make a little extra money because your sibling, your child, your friend, your spouse, whoever, got in some kind of financial difficulty, and so now you want to help them out. And so while you're working these extra hours trying to make sure that they have what they need, they're sleeping well at night, and they can't understand why you're tired all the time. And you can't make something, make something. How come I come home and, and there's no food here? They don't even think about the fact that, that, that you're going through all of these other things in order to try to make it safe for them. And so they're like Jonah in that sense. I've seen people go to jail 
And the parents will, will put the house up as bond money. And I mean, the parents are just frantic about how they're going to take care of this and how much it's going to cost to do this or do that. And, and then the, the troublemaking child, I mean, they lay down on the couch and go to sleep just like it's nobody's business. Not a problem in the world. They don't care about anything. This is how Jonah was. Verse number six, the shipmaster came and woke him up and said, what in the world is going on, Mr. Sleepy Man? Wipe the sleep out of your eyes and wake up and call on your God. If so be, he'll think about us and we won't perish. So they've got death on their minds and Jonah is sleeping. And, and that goes back to what I was saying. When you think you're about to die, God looks good. He looks good. Yeah. Uh, many, many people have gone through life and have not thought about God at all until they've come face to face with death. You understand? A, a person who is 70 or 80 or 90, they'll think about death and it enters their radar screen because they know I only got a few heartbeats left. You see, Somebody who's 40, 50 or 60, if they're battling something that can create a problem where life can be cut short, death becomes important. Now, Paul tells us how to die. He writes that to Timothy. He says, be faithful unto death. That means as long as there's breath in your body, you're to be faithful unto God. But the shipmaster, he's thinking about something else here. This shipmaster's theology was real simple. I don't care what God you call on as long as you call on some God because we're in trouble. And that's how a lot of people believe. It's not that you have to pray to the right God, nor is it true that you have to have faith in the right God. Just call on some God. So it doesn't matter if you're Buddhist, Hinduist, or if you're Muslim, Jewish, Jehovah's Witness, Mormon, Shintoist, Wiccan. You could be involved with a satanic Coven, maybe you would like the Sikh religion of India. See, whatever religion it might be, animism, that's all across Africa, not to mention the tribal religions that so many have and Native American uh, religions that they have. And so a person will say, look, it doesn't matter who you call on when you're in trouble, just as long as you call on God, because it, it's more of a psychological thing. If you feel like you're talking to someone who can help you, then by calling on that God, you will feel better about yourself in the midst of the, uh, the storm. But that's not what, what Jonah is going to learn from God here. The shipmaster's theology was wrong. Every religion is not the same. And just calling on any God is not going to help you. I can promise you, you can go out here to any cemetery and come Memorial Day, there'll be people out there. You'll see, you'll see that they'll decorate the graves and all of that. Now, I'm not saying anything wrong with that. But if you, if you stand out there long enough, you'll see two or three people come out there and stand by a headstone and start having a conversation. As if the decedent can hear you. And they're going through all of this stuff and they're talking about this and they're talking about that. But, but what I want you to understand that if you, if you want something that's really going to be therapeutic for your Christian life and you got to get rid of burdens and loads, talk to God. Cast every care upon him because he cares for you. Grandma, grandpa, not going to respond. 
They're not going to say anything. And we ought to just be glad they went on to heaven anyhow. So we, we, we look at this and we see that here's a group of men and a man in a sea of trouble. At least they're religious, we could say. You know, at least they're not atheists. They're, they're religious, but, but, but even with this, you might as well be atheist because if you're not calling on the right God, you're not calling on any God. That's the difference. Not calling on any God. Well, verse 6, the, the captain says to him, well, it, it, it may be that he'll think about us because obviously God's not thinking about us right now. Now, we have a story similar to this in the Gospels where Jesus is sleeping in the ship and the disciples are in the storm. And, and they went down and woke him up after they'd used buckets to try to get water out of the vessel. And they woke him up and they said, Master, don't you care? We're perishing. Well, Jesus did care. But at least they went to the right God. Verse 7, they said, everyone to his fellow, come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell upon Jonah. Now, now what are lots? Lots are like what we have today. We call it the lottery. In ancient times, they would have some stones or rocks and they would put numbers on them. And then they would take those rocks and they'd put them in a sack or some kind of a container. And of course, then they'd shake that thing up a little bit. And just like you folks that are tied to the television every evening, trying to figure out whether or not you're going to win the pick four or something like that, then, then somebody reaches in there and they grab that number. And whatever's on that number, that's the lot for that particular person. So they did with this with Jonah. And of course, Jonah was discovered to be the culprit who was behind the evil. And they believed that when you cast lots, that it would be God who would orchestrate which numbers would come up. So quite naturally, they, we know that from verse 4, God's behind this whole scenario anyhow. But even in the midst of these heathen people, you can still see that God is big enough and strong enough to do whatever he wants to do. Same thing in the crucifixion with Christ. I think it was Herod or Pilate, one of them. Uh, from their lips, they uttered something that was sim- uh, like a prophecy about somebody who had to die, even though they were heathen. God can do whatever he wants to do. So verse 8, they, they said to him, tell us, we pray you, what is the cause of this evil? What is your occupation? Where are you from? What is your country? And who are your people? Those are some very important questions. I, if I hadn't read this story and knew that it was in the book of Jonah, I would have thought all of these people on the ship were from Nebraska. Because that is what Nebraskans ask you. What's your last name? What town were you raised in? Who are your people? Eh? That, that kind of a thing there. So they, they want to know if we're in this kind of trouble, man, what kind of job do you have? Do you run a tavern? What do you do that you brought all of this, this, this uh, discord and everything upon us? Where, where have you come from? Which country? And then what are the people in that country that you belong to? And he told them in verse 9, he was honest. He said, I'm Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which made the sea and the land. Now, the, the question here is, okay, if you fear the Lord, the God of heaven that made everything, then why are you running from him? See, true reverence and fear of God has never led anybody away from God. What, what is what is a right definition for 
fear of God. It's a reverence. It's an attitude of reverence for God that is accompanied by a desire to obey him. That's what the fear of God is. But this man is on a boat saying, I fear the Lord and I'm running from him. So in verse 10, verse 10, these folks really got nervous and they asked him, why have you done this to us? Because they knew he fled from the presence of the Lord because he told them. Confession is good, but sometimes people don't want to hear what you're confessing. Because what you say makes them liable <laughs> for the trouble that they may get in, that you get involved with. They're now going to be part of that. That's that's the whole point of this. So sometimes when you hear certain things, you don't like to you don't like other people to know that you know it. When you're dealing with deity, of course, once you confessed that you're running from God, then quite naturally, if you're the one listening, you don't want that God mad at you because they think. Because he will think you're harboring a fugitive. So now you've got to try to figure out how do I get rid of this sinner so that we can maintain the vessel. They want to get out of this with the least amount of pain. Uh, You know, one of the things being a pastor is people can confess things to you. And sometimes when they say things to you, you are obliged to keep it to yourself, but there are some circumstances where the law enforcement personnel would like you to feel obliged to tell them. And that becomes part of the trouble. You see. Is, is this a secret of the heart that you hold on to, or is this something that you share with somebody else? Now, they've discovered a secret from a man by the name of Jonah. They're out in the middle of the waters. God is upset with him, and now they're trying to figure out how can we get out of the midst of this anger that's directed toward him. So look at what they do in verse 11. They said, what shall we do with you that the sea may be calm unto us? See, you're the problem, but we need peace, and we don't have it as long as you're with us. And it said the sea wrought and was tempestuous. Well, now that's self-preservation. Self-preservation. And I think that's normal and that's natural. If you're if you're on a if you're out there on a, a uh, I'll say a floaty or some kind of a boat that you got to fill up with air or something like that, and then all of a sudden there's a puncture, and there's six of you that are in that thing, and you can hear the the air going out of it, and it's you know that thing's starting to deflate. It's, it's deflating slowly though. But I said there's six or seven of you in there, but there are only four life vests. And the six or seven people in the in the uh, in that little raft or whatever, the bulk of them don't know how to swim. There's probably going to be some fighting going on. There'll be some fighting going on. Well, they they wanted to try to get get some peace in their life, and so verse twelve, here's what he said. He, he said, "Here's the answer. You pick me up, you throw me into the sea." Peace and calm will return, for I know that for my sake this great tempest has come upon you. So he's told them, I'm the problem. Get rid of me. Now watch what they do. Verse 13, nevertheless, the men rode hard to bring it to land. Now he said to them, I'm the problem. This is what you do. Throw me overboard. Well, we can't do that. That'd be like murder. We can't just toss you out here into the abyss and just leave you out here. 
So they said, men, come on, grab the oars. Let's do this. And I mean, they're just a rowing. Can you imagine trying to row against God's wind? How strong do you think your arms are? I promise you, you'll get tired before he does. Your arms are too short to box with God. Your legs are too short to outrun God. There's nothing you can do. If God is leaning against you and you're trying to push back, you are going to lose every time. That's why I said they're in the sea of trouble. It's trouble. Nothing they can, nothing they can do. But we, we tend to be like this, though. We, we have this idea after God has fingered the problem. After he's put his finger on the one thing, not two things, not three things, but the one thing he wants you to deal with in your life. Then you and other people will very often try to conspire to say, OK, I think maybe we can get around this if we do this. It won't be so bad. Now, me, when if we'd have been out there in the middle of that storm and the uh, water would have been crashing into the vessel and the wind would have been howling such that we could not hardly hear one another. But I faintly but distinctly heard Jonah say something to the effect, I'm the cause of the problem. If you would just throw me into the waters, then the calm would come back. I could promise you all by myself before he would even finish the sentence, I would have had him in the air. He's going overboard. Once you know what the trouble is, why wait a little bit longer? It takes you back to the story of uh, the children of Israel and Moses. And do you remember when, when they had the plague of the frogs? Remember that? And, and so, so Moses went to Pharaoh and talked to him about that. And he said, well, when do you want the frogs to, to be gone? And then Pharaoh said, well, uh, tomorrow. Well, I would have said now. Okay. He said tomorrow. And a, a thousand preachers have, have ministered messages on one more night with the frogs. Because we don't want to get rid of the very thing that, that is the problem. We know what the sin is. We know what the issue is. But we want to hold on to it a little bit longer. And these men thought that by preserving Jonah's life, maybe they would actually be saving a life. But Jesus told us, if somebody wants to save their life, they've got to lose it. The one that loses it will save it. So verse 13, the men rode hard to bring it to land, but they couldn't. Of course not. For the sea wrought and was tempestuous against them. So, so stop rowing. Just, just surrender. Subordinate your will to God. Give in to God. Let God have his way. As the old folks used to say, let go and let God have his wonderful way. See? Let go and let God have his way. But verse 14, wherefore they cried unto the Lord and said, we beseech thee, O Lord, we beseech thee, let us not perish for this man's life. Now, what is interesting between verse 14 and verses 5 and 6 is that now in verse 14, if, if, if we were looking at this in the Hebrew, then we could see now they're calling on Jonah's God. You see, something had happened in the storm. In the middle of the storm, I don't know. I'm not going to say it's conversion, but I'm just going to say that they figured out that, OK, if you're the culprit, then your God's the one that's displeased. So we probably need to be talking to him because talking to these other guys is not going to help us at all. And, and I think that the trouble, trouble has converted and brought a lot of people to faith in the Lord. I'm thinking now of a story 
where a, a gentleman over in Scotland, he had pastored, I think this church, maybe about 10 years or so, and he went into a hospital to visit a man whose daughter was in the hospital giving birth, and they weren't sure if the child would be born healthy or if the mom would lose her life in the process. Well, this, this man who he had gone to visit was the, the father. Now, several years before this event with his daughter, he was in the hospital. The preacher went to go visit him and to talk with him about his soul. And that old man laying in the bed said to him, he said, he said, you'll never get me. So what, what do you mean? He said, I'm the biggest sinner in this region and you'll never get me. I'll never come to your God. I'm not thinking about your God at all. Well, that pastor, he didn't think too much about that. He prayed for the man anyhow. But here we are a few years later. The man's daughter is in that hospital. and they Don't know if it's going to be the daughter or the baby that makes it. And they called for the preacher. And when the preacher got there, he got there just in time to see that father down on his knees. And he had prayed, oh, God. Help my daughter. And so that pastor, ha- having heard that, he went in there, got down on his knees, put his arms around him, called him by name, and he said, who is that I heard you calling on? See? Trouble. Trouble has a way of causing people to think about their condition, to think about their circumstance, to think about their life, as Paul says, to examine ourselves to see whether or not we're in the faith. Trouble will do that. So here, here, here we have it. They said, Lord, we're asking you, don't let us die for this man's life. And don't lay innocent blood upon us, O Lord. And then verse 15. So finally, Jonah got the old heave hole. And you can see they took him up and cast him forth into the sea. And the sea ceased from her raging. See what happens when we deal with the sin? Sometimes immediately things change. Not always, but sometimes immediately things will change. But they had to make the decision to deal with it. And that is where I think the, the trouble begins because a lot of people don't like to make that kind of decision to have to say, Okay, it's time for you and for me to disconnect. Hard for people to do that. They they could have gotten to know gotten to know Jonah over the period of days or weeks or whatever it was they were out here. And once you establish a relationship with somebody, it's much harder to to break that link. See how difficult it is for 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 family members to to have to deal with people who just consistently make one bad decision after another that is causing everybody else in the family pain and money. See how difficult it is to break that link? And the reason for that is because relationship is a bond that cements people together. And and it's hard to just say to someone, even when everybody else is telling you, oh, if that was me, I'd have gave up on him a long time ago. But then, see, if you're a mom, you're thinking, well, look, I gave birth to him or her. And then the dad says, well, look, that's, that's still my boy, and so on and so forth. But 
when, when we look at a situation like this, we're out in the middle of the, of the water. It's either we're going to get into the good graces of God or we're going to hold on to the relationship with Jonah. Now, what's more important, to have God happy with me or to have Jonah happy with, happy with me? And that's where, you're, that's where the, the uh, decision has to be made. Do I choose my family and friends or do I choose God? That's where it's at. A friend of mine few months ago, he wrote a, a little pamphlet for some churches back on the East Coast that he ministers to, and he sent it to me and asked me to give, give him some, um, some suggestions and stuff like that and, and maybe write like a little blurb for it. But the, the reason he wrote it was because he, he had people in his church that were coming to him, and they were saying, Now, Pastor, I know and you know that Marriage is between a man and a woman, but I've got people in my family that are involved with these other kind of alternative lifestyles. And when they, when they get married, what are we supposed to do? We get the invitation to the wedding. Do we go or do we not go? And so my pastor friend, he asked, he had asked them, okay, what do you think? Do you go or do you not go? And so he said, well, they said to him, well, we, we just think that we should show love to them because they're our relatives and we should... We should be there, letting them know we don't agree, but we're there. And so my friend said to them, well, okay, you try that, then you talk to me afterwards, then we'll have a conversation. So they, so they did that, and of course, the, the lady went, and it was her daughter involved with this deal, and the, the, the daughter made a statement to her mom there, I'm glad you came, but why did you come? Because I know you don't believe in this kind of a thing, and so the... the uh, Mom said, well I, well, I love you. And then the daughter said to the mom, but if, if this is such a sin as you say it is a sin, why would you come and endorse a sin, approve a sin, and be a part of what you say is a sin? Why would you compromise your values for me? And I, now, when she said that to the mom, it was like somebody took a knife, stuck it in, and just started twisting. So she comes back to the pastor, my friend, and, and my pastor friend then had a good conversation with her and let her know you shouldn't have been there in the first place. You know, shouldn't have been there. And then he wrote that, wrote this little book he's working on trying to publish. Because here's the thing, folks. Either you want favor with God or you want favor with man. You can, you, you can go through a lot of things to justify trying to keep Jonah happy. Because you don't want to throw them overboard in that regard. But the pastor never one time told the mother that you need to separate your relationship with your daughter. Never one time told her she needs to stop loving her. Never told her one time that she should not be allowed to come to her house. The only thing he said to her was afterwards that you should not have been there. See, at that event. That's all. At that event. Because the role of a Christian is to promote Christ in everything that we do. So let's finish this up. Verse 15, they took Jonah, cast him forth into the sea. Verse 16, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. That's exactly what happened with the disciples when they were on the ship with Jesus. They said, what kind of a man is this that could make the sea and the winds obey? And it says, they offered a sacrifice unto the Lord and made vows. I told you something was going on on that boat. When they realized Jonah was the cause, now, now all of a sudden they, they, they're, they're trying to do this thing with the king. But 
Verse 15, they threw him in the water. Verse 16, these men feared the Lord. But verse 17, God said, okay, I'm not done yet because Jonah hadn't finished his lesson. So the Lord prepared a great fish. The Lord had prepared. Say those four words with me. The Lord had prepared a great fish. Now you think about this. If the fish swallowed up Jonah, the fish had to be somewhere near the boat when they tossed him overboard. God had this whole thing worked out. Now, I don't know if when the when the vessel took off from land and started sailing towards Spain, I don't know if God just put it in the in the, the thinking processes of one of them big fish to just follow this boat. That fish probably, why am I following this boat? See, I, I don't know if he did that or if just right about this particular time when they're about to toss Jonah over, then, then a fish starts making its way over in that vicinity. But, but the, what I'm trying to emphasize is that this is no coincidence. This is providence. This is God at work. This is God manipulating circumstances and situations. And he's letting Jonah know you are not bigger than me. You're not bigger than me. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And so the next time we look into the study, then we'll find out how Jonah went to Bible school in the fish's belly. You, you can learn a lot when, you, when you're swimming around in the depths of the sea. You know, best Bible school a man ever gone through was when he was in the fish's belly. And the amazing thing about it is that he didn't have to go through all of this if he'd have just got up and went to Nineveh. Sometimes we create our own problem. One bad decision leads to another bad decision. And if the decisions continue to be bad, then eventually God says we've got to stop this nonsense. And we've got to at least try to get somebody back on the right track. And putting us back on the right track is not always easy on us physically, as in this case, or easy on us mentally. I can't imagine I know this story was true. Jesus believed in this story. He said, as Jonah was in the heart of the fish three days and three nights, so must the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. So don't tell me that this story isn't true. Even if you run into somebody that tells you it's a myth, it's a legend. Well, Jesus believed it. And I'm a Christian. And to be a Christian means to be like Christ. So I'm going to hold on to this story. He said, Daryl, you don't really believe that fish story that that that's well swallowed Jonah, do you? I do believe that. And I'm telling you, if it had been written differently and it would have said Jonah swallowed the fish, I'd be preaching that. But it says the fish swallowed Jonah. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful this evening that we could look into your word. We understand, God, that we don't have all the answers, but we do know you do. And when we look into this chapter, we learn so much about ourselves as well as about your character. But Father, thank you for being so merciful and loving us so much that you would never leave us in a position where we could keep harming ourselves and harming others. But thank you for every person you ever send into our lives that tried to turn us around. Thank you for every track that we ever read, every program on television that we, we heard somebody preaching the gospel. Thank you for every program on radio where somebody told us that we should repent of our sins. Thank you for every friend or relative that you brought onto our vessel to hug us and love us and say you don't have to do this and live this way. God, we honor you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen.